0: Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you give us a word and we thank you that it speaks of our Saviour Jesus. Uh, We pray in your mercy uh, that as we turn to your word now, we would know its good work uh, through your Spirit in our lives, that it would help us to trust and delight in Jesus and it would equip us to live lives as his followers. Help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly and help us all to understand it and receive it with faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, many of us think of the time of our lives in a linear way, starting at birth and moving along in one direction, marked by a succession of achievements that we celebrate, whether that's finishing school, graduating, getting a job, marrying, having children, progressing in our careers, or marked by a succession of birthdays that we celebrate. But there's another way to think of our time, and that is as a succession of the recurring cycle of the seasons. Each year, spring, summer, autumn, winter, and again, spring, summer, autumn, winter, on and on. Now, if you're on the land, that cycle dominates. Ploughing, sowing, harvest, pruning, picking, lambing and shearing. But even in the city, we feel and mark the passing of the seasons. And our years have a pattern. If you're a footy fan, there's the pre-season, the season, the finals, the trade, the off-season, and as they say, there's always next year when it all starts again. When your children are in school, there are the terms and the holidays, the camps and the concerts coming round again and again. And if you're a gardener, there's the planting, the picking, the pruning. Now the people of Israel had, as we heard, a pattern to their year, a pattern of festivals which we're now going to look at. But as we look at their pattern, I want you to ask yourself, what does the pattern of my life and my year and the celebrations that punctuate it, say about what I think is important? Does the rhythm of my life express my core convictions as a believer in Jesus, support those core convictions as I travel through life, as I cycle through the years towards the end of my journey? Do I need to intentionally give my life, my year, a structure, a rhythm, that will express and support those core convictions and commitments that will help me live as I say I am, someone who confesses Jesus Christ is Lord. And I'd encourage you to engage with those questions, not only because, as we heard in Deuteronomy 16, the Lord gave his Old Testament people a yearly pattern that expresses and supports their relationship to him as their God, but also because increasingly our time is being emptied of the living God. Our personal lives are squeezed by our busyness. What is made prominent in our yearly cycle are not the things that remind us of and turn us to him, but things that focus us on this life and on ourselves, our achievements and our pleasures. God is either being removed from public remembrance or his place obscured as Christian festivals are absorbed into holidays, diminished in significance by having to share their time with other events like the football now on Good Friday or co-opted to serve commercial agendas. And we living in this society are caught up in this and can live as if our God is marginal to the rhythm of our lives, part of the backdrop but not the centre stage. So let's think about the three great festivals of Deuteronomy 16 to learn the rhythm of a life lived as God's people. The three festivals mentioned in Deuteronomy 16 and elsewhere were the great festivals for, as Deuteronomy 16 says, this was the time when all your males shall appear before the Lord at the place he will choose. Those festivals were compulsory for all Israelite land-owning men though not for the women. Women, in fact, all Israelites, are included in these celebrations. But women may be at times pregnant or nursing young children, and these are all pilgrim festivals involving what might be difficult travel, generally by foot, if you were wealthy it might be by donkey, but difficult travel over several days. So it was not compulsory for the women. They were included but not compelled to be present at every festival, every time. Now, the three festivals. Now, let me say this next slide will demonstrate to you perhaps that I'm one of Andy's dreamers. Good thought, poor execution, especially if you're sitting down the back. But this is the Israel... This is an analog pointer. What you had before, you know, you had those. Things. Okay, right. But this is the Israelite year and the seasons of the Israelite year from the New Bible Atlas. Okay, and up here, first month, uh, first festival in the first month is Passover. Okay, so that's basically spring. Now you're coming to summer, the dry season, and here is the Feast of Weeks, the third month. And that's when you basically finished harvesting the wheat. And then down here in the seventh month, you have the Feast of Birds. And that's when the wheat's been winnowed and gathered in, and you've harvested the figs and the grapes and the olives. It's the big, in a sense, harvest festival, the end the end of the agricultural year, in a sense, all the produce has come in. So what you actually see there is that while the first mark, the Passover, the first festival, first month, marked an historical event, the second and third festivals, the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Booths, were very much tied to the agricultural year. And that's important, and we'll think about why that's important in a little while. Now, what can we learn from the practice and the purpose of these festivals? Well, firstly, in terms of practice, God calls the shots. They're to be celebrated as he commanded. They're an expression of his rule over the lives of his people. And so they had to be celebrated in the place he commanded, which meant for many Israelites, they would have to travel. So Passover had to be at the place that the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there. And the same was true for the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Booths. And they had to be celebrated for the duration he commanded. So that would have been at least two weeks in the year, one at Unleavened Bread and one at Booths, where the people could not work their land. And their celebration had to conform to the Lord's instruction, whether it was about the Passover lamb or... Eating unleavened bread, or bringing verse ten the tribute of a free will offering, they were to be celebrated as God commanded and there was always verses sixteen and seventeen an offering to the Lord expected a free will offering. now the free will offering could be a sacrifice in which the worshiper could share or a gift to the tabernacle. The content or amount of the offering was not specified. Rather, it was an act of generosity in response to God's gracious generosity, giving, verse 17, as one was able in proportion to the Lord's blessing. And these were to be community-wide celebrations. All land-owning Israelite males must be present. They all had to be there. And they were to be inclusive celebrations. Your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow. As many Israelites as possible and even non-Israelites, sojourners, people staying with them, were to celebrate. Now, think for a minute about what it would take if you were an Israelite to keep these festivals. First of all, it would take time, lots of time. And it would take money, well, at least in kind resources, it would take a willingness to mix with fellow Israelites and a willingness to include. And so this would take effort to get there, to celebrate, to relate. And that would always be the temptation, wouldn't there, to, to complain, to think your life would be better off without these impositions or be better, more convenient if, well, things were done differently, you know, just your little family group at home. You know, if you lived five or six days' walk away, you you'd be thinking, wouldn't you, couldn't we do this at home? Or you'd be thinking, what if something happens while I'm away? Because it's not going to be easy to get back, is it? And if you lived at the place God chose, you'd probably be thinking, oh, the crowds again, the price of everything's going to go up. And if you ran the tabernacle or temple, you would think, logistic nightmare. And always you'd be thinking, shouldn't I be storing up this gift for a rainy day? So what would it take to celebrate? time, money, effort, generosity, and above all, faith. Faith in the Lord's promised protection while you're away from your community. He'd promised that Exodus 34, no one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. Faith, grateful faith that the Lord was your God and his commands were for your good, for your prospering. Our faith that these feasts, as he promised, would be a means of continuing to enjoy the blessing of relationship with the Lord as their God, verse 16, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands so that you'll be altogether joyful. To keep these festivals, the faith you would need is the faith you need to do the Lord's will whenever his command doesn't seem to suit your lifestyle or your personality or make sense in the light of your immediate concerns. Actually, you need the faith that is at the heart of that life-giving fear of the Lord, that trusting awe that says the Lord rules and it is always right to live his way. So seeing that at times keeping these feasts would be inconvenient, even difficult, why does the Lord insist on them? What does the Lord say is the purpose of these feasts? How would their practice contribute to sustaining the relationship between Israel and the Lord their God, that life-giving relationship? Well, we can think of the purpose of the feasts under four R's. They were to help Israel remember, rejoice, rejoice, resist and reorient, all of which would sustain them in living gratefully and joyfully as the Lord's people. Faithful obedience to this at times inconvenient pattern of life would sustain a living faith and a real relationship with the Lord their God. So firstly, these feasts serve the purpose of helping Israel remember that they were the Lord's saved people, the people who had their existence because he had rescued them from Egypt. Now, that was clearly true of the Passover and unleavened bread, even in the details of the celebration. Say, verse 3, you shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, for you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, at all the days of your life you may remember Remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. Remembering with faith would then include each succeeding generation in that saving event, include them in the saved people of God, give them their identity. But actually remembering was also the purpose of the Feast of Weeks and the inclusion of all in that celebration. So that was verse 12 so that you would remember that you were a slave in Egypt. And you shall be careful to observe these statutes. But remembering was also the purpose of the Feast of Booth, that great harvest festival. In Leviticus, God says that his people are to dwell in booths verse 42, for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, and their constructions, temporary constructions, made up of the branches of trees, All native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Remembering was vital in Israel continuing as the Lord's people. Moses has already warned of the danger of forgetting in Deuteronomy 8, warned that the danger of forgetting was particularly acute when they enjoyed prosperity in the land. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and have fallen and have built good houses and live in them and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. To forget, we learn in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 8, to forget was the pathway to apostasy and death as a nation. If you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall perish like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you. To forget was death. The pathway to life and continuing blessing, verse 18, Moses had said, was remembering. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. You see, at these festivals, in the midst of enjoying and celebrating that very bounty that could be a temptation to forget, in keeping these festivals, Israel would Remember. Remember that this was the fruit of the Lord's gracious kindness to them in saving them and making them his people, and they would live. Faithful practice will promote perseverance in faith in relationship with the Lord. And as well as remembering, these festivals were given so that Israel would rejoice in and celebrate the Lord's present blessing in providing for their needs. Rejoice in the good of being the Lord's people. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God. You shall rejoice in your feast. They were to rejoice before the Lord because the Lord deserved their thanks and praise for his kindness and faithful provision. The bounty they enjoyed in the land came from his goodness and faithfulness, his faithfulness to his promise to their fathers to give them this land, his faithfulness to his promise to creation to sustain the seasons, the regularity of sowing and harvest in Genesis 8. That rejoicing would express what was true, that the Lord is good and that he provides for his people and he can be trusted. And it reinforced, as we'll see, that he is the only God, the Lord of creation, as well as salvation. You see, in remembering and rejoicing, the Israelites would be strengthened to resist, to resist the idolatry, the life-destroying idolatry of the nations around them. You see, the worship of the local gods, of the local people, focused on the worship of Baal, was all about securing the fertility of the agricultural cycle in Canaan. In Canaanite religion, Baal was the god of rain and thunder. He was the one who was said to bring the all-important rain upon which a good harvest depended. So the nations around about were saying, oh, the worship of Baal, that's the way to ensure prosperity in this land of Canaan. And Israel could be tempted to think, oh, the Lord, our God, yes, he's a great God of war. He's a good man to have on your side. Well, not man, take that back. I really will get stoned. Right, he's He's a great God to have on your side in a battle. We need him for that. But they might also think, but, but he's not the God of this land. No, 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 we need the local gods to prosper as farmers here. But these festivals that the Lord has commanded actually unite, they marry the Lord's rule of history and his saving power to the agricultural cycle, to Israel's prosperity in the land. Celebrating these festivals said the Lord who saved, the Lord who made them, for example, live in booths when they came out of Egypt, well, the Lord is also the God who gives us abundant and regular harvest. It says the Lord's the God of the whole earth, not some local or specialised deity. The Lord's the creator and ruler of all without rival. Oh, the Lord is the only God who alone should be worshipped. Faithful practice of these festivals helped Israel resist the lies of the pagans they lived amongst, resist the idolatry, that would break the covenant and cause them to be expelled from the land the Lord had given them. And so the faithful practice of these celebrations, remembering, rejoicing, resistance, resisting, would reorient the Israelites' thinking to the covenant the Lord had made with them at Sinai and was renewing with them here on the borders of Canaan in these speeches of Moses. And it would sustain them in the key demand of that covenant Love of God and love of neighbour. Love of neighbour. You see, in these feasts, they would include their needy, the landless. Remembering and rejoicing in God's generosity included sharing that generosity with others, their neighbours in the feast. And so it would sustain the culture of generosity that the Lord commanded in Israel, as we saw last week in chapter 15. And remembering and rejoicing in God's gracious salvation and his faithfulness would reorient Israel's thinking away from themselves as the source of their own prosperity and peace to the living God, their God, the Lord, who could alone keep and provide for them, their covenant God. Faith practised in what for many might seem an inconvenient interruption to their lives would renew and enrich faith the faith that would sustain them in living as God's people, living in love of God and love of neighbour. That is, living the life of blessing in the land that God had given them. It would teach them to look away from themselves to the Lord for their peace and hope. So these festivals are actually a wonderful provision of the Lord for his people a provision that would sustain them in living as his people in his presence, in his place. More, remembering and rejoicing would sustain the hope that would protect their relationship to the Lord even in hard times. You see, remembering the Lord's salvation in the past, in the Exodus, and in so doing, remembering his gracious kindness and his almighty power, and rejoicing in his present provision And in so doing, remembering his faithfulness and his power to sustain and give life now, remembering and rejoicing, sustain hope in the Lord for the future. Hope that's based on his continuing to be who he is, his continuing kindness, steadfast love and power. Hope that's based on his reality, his proven experience, faithfulness to his promise. Hope that would motivate continued covenant obedience. And hope was comforting and needed in an agricultural economy where what you lived on was what you harvested and there were many months between sowing and harvest, months of uncertainty. Celebrating these festivals allowed them to face what was unknown, the season to come with confidence. And it strengthened their obedience, their determination not to look elsewhere for their needs. But these festivals especially sustain hope under judgment. As we know, Israel was unfaithful. They did turn aside to other gods. And after many years, many centuries of patiently calling Israel to turn back to him, the Lord did exactly what he said he would do. He kicked them out of the land under judgment, whether in exile in Babylon or whether on return from exile, when the Jews occupied Judah as a subject people, whether to Persia or to Rome, the hope that came from remembering and rejoicing as they were commanded pointed forward to a time when they would be rescued, saved from that judgment. A time when they would again be delivered from their enemies as they were at the Exodus, where they were freed by the death of the Passover lamb. A time where they would again know peace, that is, security, plenty, righteousness, living in God's place, in God's presence as his people delivered from all their enemies. But that land, the place of God's presence whether in the prophet Isaiah or the prophet Ezekiel, was increasingly thought of as the renewed, the new heaven and earth. And so the hope to which these festivals pointed became associated with the great end-time hope of God's people. And that hope for deliverance and peace, the New Testament says, Jesus fulfils. What the festivals pointed to, the New Testament says Jesus brings. And so Paul says he is our Passover lamb, the one whose death sets us free from judgment. More, at the day of Pentecost, which is actually the Greek name for the festival of weeks, remember it said count 50 days, 50 in Greek, Pentecosio, is just the name for that festival of weeks. The exalted Lord Jesus has already begun the end-time harvest, already started to gather his scattered people into one, where they are one because they now share the same spirit, the spirit who is the life of the age to come. And yes, the New Testament says Jesus is the one, who will reap the final and full harvest of the earth. That great ingathering at the end, which the festival of booze points to, that great ingathering where he will separate all rebels against God, all lawbreakers, he will separate them from those who trust him. This is Jesus explaining the story, the parable of the wheat and the weeds that he had told. Verse 37, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, the field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom, the weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The son of man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin, and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Now I hope you know what the festival of booze points to, that reality, that there will be this final great harvest. And you might be sitting here this morning and knowing you have not yet made peace with God, through believing the gospel of Jesus his son and turning back to God by confessing Jesus as Lord. You should know the living God who rescued Israel from Egypt, the living God who is the creator and ruler of the earth, the source of all the good we enjoy, the sustainer of your life as these festivals remind us, the living God says that he will judge all through his son, whom he raised from the dead. And he calls us all, he calls you to turn back and find life by trusting and following Jesus. The great harvest will come. Will that great harvest be joy or terror for you? You ought to make peace with God. He's good and generous. Make peace with God through making peace with Jesus, calling out to him for forgiveness. And if you don't know how to do that, come and talk. But these festivals, like all the Old Testament law, have found and will find their fulfilment in Jesus. And in bringing the fulfilment of these festivals, the fulfilment of the Sinai Covenant, Jesus has brought into existence, has inaugurated the New Covenant... We relate to God, are the Lord's people, not by keeping the Sinai covenant, not by keeping these festivals, but by faith in Jesus. In fact, as you can see there, Galatians and Colossians, the New Testament says we can't, we mustn't require the celebration of months and seasons of the Jewish festivals as if we needed to become Jews to be right with God, to be justified. The apostle Paul says, that to try to introduce these festivals, to insist on them, is only a great step backwards. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, well, what have we been doing in the last... I'm not going to say how long it is. I'm a bit oblivious to time, as you probably realise, right? But at this point, you think, what have we been doing looking at them? Well, the Lord also says that all Scripture, including Deuteronomy's instruction on the feasts, is profitable for believers, helping us trust Jesus and equipping us by its teaching, rebuke, correction and training to be complete, to be ready, to do all the good he intends us to do. We're looking at these because there is a wisdom, a life-sustaining, faith-sustaining wisdom in giving our lives collectively and individually a rhythm of rejoicing and remembering. Now, why? Why is that wise? For the very reasons Israel was given these festivals, so that we will remember, not now the exodus from Egypt, but the Lord's great saving work through the coming of our Saviour Jesus, his death and resurrection and exaltation to the right hand of the Father. And so that we believers in Jesus will rejoice, build rejoicing in being saved, being forgiven and adopted as God's sons and daughters, having a hope of eternal life into our lives. And those are privileges worth rejoicing in every day, rejoicing as we experience now God's fatherly provision, care and love in relation to him through trusting Jesus. Oh, and there's a wisdom in having that rhythm so that we will resist the idolatry that surrounds us. The temptation to seek the satisfaction of our needs, our prosperity, the source of our life, elsewhere. Those temptations are real, whether that's the temptation to a godless self-sufficiency that even in a great drought does not call people to turn back to the Creator for mercy, that says humanity alone can guarantee our safety and prosperity. Or whether it's... The temptation of the lie that we can find life in the pursuit of our own pleasures or the temptation of the lie that peace in a pluralistic society is found by reducing the living, saving God, Father, Son and Spirit to just one God among many. We need to give our lives a rhythm of remembering and rejoicing so that by remembering, rejoicing and resisting, we will continually reorient our lives to our saving God, to each other and to the future he has promised us. A pattern of life, a rhythm of remembering and rejoicing sustains faith and hope and love, even as it expresses them. But how? How do we give ourselves this rhythm? What might a life-sustaining rhythm look like? Well, individually... It probably looks like a time of reading God's word and praying every day and meeting together each week and participating in the communal celebrations of God's people like Easter and Christmas. Now, like the festivals of the Old Testament, that rhythm might seem to you inconvenient and costly. I mean, think of them taking time off work, plodding up to Jerusalem. Over days, they probably felt like staying at home. But in taking responsibility to sustain the health of our Christian lives, we can't be guided by our feelings, held captive to our feelings. Faith kept the festivals. And if you can read, faith will read God's word. Not because it makes us feel better, gives us a little up in our day. No, but because you believe the promise that it will do you good. Bring blessing where you delight in God's word, equip you to trust Jesus and live as his followers for eternal life. And faith will meet regularly. Not because we always feel like it, but because we trust that what our Lord commands us, he commands us for our good. You know, so often in our busy lives we, we we kind of go for the minimum Christian life. You know, what's the minimum I can do to kind of keep my membership up? Uh. And people ask me, you know, do I need to read the Bible to be saved? Do I have to meet with believers to be saved? The, the answer is of course not, you know. Trust Jesus, confess him as Lord. You'll be saved. But you will be a weak unhealthy and fruitless Christian if you do not read and pray and meet. I mean, all you have to do to stay alive technically is to keep breathing. But none of us think that lying in a coma in intensive care is the way to live a healthy, fruitful and active life, do we? Right? Take responsibility for the health of your Christian life. Make sure your life has a life-sustaining rhythm. Use your lunch break. Get up earlier. Use your diary to plan to be here. Say no to things that stop you meeting. And if you need help with that or need help getting a Bible reading plan or something, ask your growth group leader. Ask one of the pastors. We'd love to help and there are lots of resources. So we need a rhythm individually. And as a church, collectively, we should have a life-sustaining rhythm a rhythm of remembering and rejoicing that we maintain together to help each other. And so that means meeting week by week and sustaining that meeting by serving one another in love with the gifts Christ has given us. Oh, it means being present at the Lord's Supper, renewing ourselves together through the means our Lord Jesus gave us to be a forgiven and forgiving community, that is, His community. Because the supper does for us what those feasts do. It teaches us to look back to the events of Christ's death that has made us from all sorts of different backgrounds, one people. It teaches us to look forward to the day the Lord Jesus will come. And it teaches us to rejoice together now in being loved and forgiven. Oh, and yes, collectively we should have a pattern to our year that remembers the great saving events Christmas, where we celebrate the Son coming into our world to save. Easter, our Lord's defeat of death in his death and rising. And I think also Pentecost, the exaltation of our Lord to the Father's right hand and the pouring out of the Spirit. Now, if you're like me, you're a Protestant, okay? And I admit this, right? Protestants can sometime, in a desire not to return to thinking, sometimes especially holy, and they're not. All our lives are holy because we live them all before God. But Protestants can sometimes just flatten out everything. Right? But it's actually useful, helpful to have times when we remember and rejoice together and we do it in the way God's word tells us to, inclusively. So, for example, no one misses out on a feast at Christmas or a break at Easter to do it joyously visibly rejoicing together in knowing a true saviour and generously, whether that's giving to the poor (coughs) as we do through tear at Christmas or to the work of the gospel here or abroad, times of remembering how blessed we are of God and giving generously in response to his generosity to us. So, brothers and sisters, let me encourage you, celebrate together. At Christmas and Easter, be with the Lord's people at Christmas and Easter, not reluctantly, not as an interruption to your holidays, not as if Christmas and Easter are just empty traditions or a hangover of Christendom, but as celebrate them as God-given opportunities to give a rhythm to your life that expresses your core convictions about Jesus and will help sustain those core convictions. Brothers and sisters, as believers in Jesus, we are a people marked out for eternal life, extraordinary as that is, sealed with the Holy Spirit of God as a guarantee of what the Lord has promised us. We're people journeying through life to the fulfilment of his promise to us, to life, resurrection life in the new heaven and earth. We can't have our year take its rhythm from the football or the financial calendar or the school year. Those things are so transient, so ephemeral and so much bound to this life. If we're going to persevere as faithful and fruitful followers of Jesus, we need deeper roots. We need a greater consciousness of being the Lord's holy people, living each day in the presence of the Holy God through his spirit in us, living it together. We need a rhythm that keeps us conscious of what the Lord has done for us, his great saving works in Christ. We need individually and collectively a rhythm that keeps us conscious of what he is continuing to do for us, his provision for us now of life and love. And we need a rhythm that keeps us conscious of what he has promised to do for us, that binds us not to this life, but to living this life as his people, people who are citizens of heaven, journeying through life to the new heaven and earth. So, embrace that rhythm for yourselves individually. And embrace it as a family and a community. Do that intentionally. Forgetting is death. Remembering is life. And embrace that rhythm not just for yourselves. You see, a a rhythm of remembering and rejoicing proclaims to the watching world a living saviour, proclaims to the world a joy and a hope in Jesus that all who repent and believe can come to share in. Sustaining your Christian life individually and collectively by having a rhythm of remembering and rejoicing is love. It is love of God, giving him publicly the honour which is his due. It is love of your brother and sister, giving them a structure that helps sustain their faith in Jesus. And yes, it is love of your as yet unsaved neighbour, because it says that there is a true and living God who can be known and who saves and whom to know is joy and hope. So give your lives that rhythm and love. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do pray in your mercy that we would be doers of the word and not just hearers only. We pray in your mercy that you would so work in us through your spirit that we would keep always at the forefront of our minds those great saving realities of the gospel, that you have sent your son into the world, the Lord Jesus and that he has died for our sins, risen, that you have exalted him to your right hand, that he reigns, that even now he gives us your spirit who cries in our hearts, Abba, Father, and who will return to establish justice and righteousness in the earth. We pray, keep these always at the forefront of our minds so that we would live for him, so that we would speak of him, so that others can know him, and so that we would rejoice in him, rejoice in him, and so live lives of faith and hope and love that honour him. In Jesus' name, amen.